morning, everybody. How are you today? Good. Well, okay, title for this morning, The Battle for the Hearts of New Believers, and we're continuing our study of the book of 1 Thessalonians, and our passage is 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 17, all the way through chapter 3 to 3, verse 13. How often do we start things in life only to stop before we really know what we're doing? How often... Does initial enthusiasm for some new venture fade when the reality hits? Perhaps there's a dusty, unplayed musical instrument at the back of your closet, maybe several of them. How many sports have you started or tried but never pursued properly? I can count them in my own life. I I, I can count, of course, Australian football, which... Maybe you've never even seen. My career in that was one appearance for my elementary, we call them primary school, team in the last five minutes of the last quarter of the last game of the season and I didn't get a touch of the ball. That was my career in that game. Then, of course, uh, I tried table tennis, uh, ping pong. My One of my cousins uh, or relatives was Australian women's champion at table tennis. I started to visit a table tennis center along with my sister's boyfriend and uh, started to uh, play uh, and, uh, you know, try to get serious with it. Uh, that stopped when they broke up. Uh, I, I started playing squash. It's a bit like American uh, racquetball, something like that. And I used to play every weekend. That went on for a few months. I did judo. I still, we found my old judo kit from when I was a, 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 a boy the other day and uh, sort of clearing out some stuff. And uh, just, you know, I only got as far as a green belt, not exactly fearsome. And uh, so, uh, you know, and then of course swimming, I learned to swim. Uh, had swimming lessons, went every, twice or more times a week, and started to, had never made the team, I was too slow. Uh, weight training, the least said the better. And, and then of course there's snooker, that's a bit like pool or billiards, so I started doing that, going to a, a place in, in my home city and, uh, playing there, and, uh, again, that, uh, sort of faded away when I realized I couldn't afford a 12 foot table and I didn't have anywhere to put it. Many a life is littered with faded enthusiasms. For how many people is Christianity a passing phase, a fad, a summer camp experience, a temporary fashion? Seven of ten people who grow up in church don't remain committed to it, although some of them come back at some point. Anyone involved in evangelism and missions has faced the heartbreak of people who respond to the gospel and then back off. Jesus taught a whole parable about this, the parable of the sower. Today we are discussing the crucial issue of the early Christian life, the 
character of Christian follow-up, we might call this. We think about chapter 1, we were looking at authentic Christian conversion, starting out the right way in in 1 Thessalonians, and uh, the character of Christian conversion, we can think about it like that. Their conversion was a a genuine encounter with the true and living God and their faith in God inspired others. Chapter 2, Paul was describing his and his team, uh, his his fellow apostles of Silas and Timothy and their visit to Thessalonica and we talked about the character of Christian outreach. The, The team who brought the gospel to them were genuine as well having confidence to speak the gospel despite persecution, the godly character of those who come to bless, not so much to be blessed, and the loving commitment of parents to their children that they had to their people that they brought to Christ. Chapter 3 now is really the character, that's the character of Christian follow-up. So they started out right according to chapter 1, but the battle is on. And now in chapter 3, Paul is continuing the story of their relationship between him and Silas and Timothy and the Thessalonians. He's explaining his absence, celebrating some good news, and in the process he's teaching them and, and us how the church, how we need to relate to those young in the faith and those whose faith is under pressure, who are tempted to backslide or to leave or to fade away. Thessalonian situation, which you might remember, is that this was a young church from a largely pagan background who had been converted, you know, most of whom had never heard the name of Jesus before, and there's no other church in town, and the nearest one is in another city over in Philippi. It's, you know, it's a very long walk. And, uh, and so, and then lead, the people who brought the gospel to them and brought the name of Jesus to them, were chased out of town uh, in the persecution that came with the first preach against the first preaching of the gospel in Thessalonica. And so they were chased south through Greece, Paul, and and was chased down through Berea and down to Athens, and 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 now he's probably writing here from Corinth. And uh, and so they're, they're they're left on their own. What do they do? Was it all? Was all that enthusiasm, was all that wonderful things that happened, was all that experience, was that just a momentary thing, a passing fad, an enthusiasm, or was it real, was it authentic, and was it right what we did in signing on to the Jesus Project? And that's what we've been talking about the last two weeks and also today. How is Paul going to encourage this church when he's, when he, he's not there? They need him, apparently, and he thinks they do. And so that's that's the situation. So now we're going to read the passage together, which is mentioned. And it's, I, I just thought, for change today, let's stand up as we read this passage of the Bible, if you're able to stand. Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person and not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting for our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? 
for you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we set Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about, about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see your face, sorry, see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Actually, in the Greek here, the last phrase, all his holy ones. You may be seated. This is about the battle for the hearts of new believers. It's a real thing. It's, that's, the, that's the most vulnerable, vulnerable period of most people's life with the Lord is when they've just begun, when they're only a few weeks or a month or a couple of years old in the Lord because that's in the process where their mind is still being transformed. Their thinking is still a lot of mixture of what they came, what they had before, and when there's all sorts of pressures that they've never faced, persecution perhaps, uh, opposition, antagonism for being uh, a believer, for going to church, for identifying with Jesus Christ and with his people, uh, for the new ethic that they have to live, all those kind of things. And in our, in our first portion of this, in verse in chapter 2, 17 to 20, uh, I call this facing the fight. This is the first four verses of our passage. Recognize the battle and commit to it. Recognize the battle and commit to it, all right? Uh, you, by the way, you know you are in a spiritual battle. This passage mentions the work of Satan twice, and this is why I'm talking about this battle for the hearts of new believers. It's a, it's a spiritual battle. And by the way, you are in spiritual warfare, whether you'd like to be or not, <laughs> right? 
you may feel like I don't know what I don't want to fight those kind of battles. I'm uh, I'm okay with uh, with someone else doing the fighting. I don't. That's too aggressive sounding for me. I don't like to be into all that kind of stuff. I don't want to have anything to do with Satan. Thank you very much. Uh, just leave me. You know, let let me have my kind of comfort zone and my uh, carefree Christian existence, and someone else can fight the fight. Uh, that's not how it works. You're in the battle zone. You're being shot at. You're in the battle. The only question is, how well are you doing? Right? The only question is, how well are you doing? And so what really I think Paul is saying, he's talking about his approach to the Thessalonians here, his approach to the Thessalonians, and, whoa, I've, now I've got very resonant. Okay, now you have to listen. So uh, this is the important moment. Paul is explaining how much he tried to get back to Thessalonia, uh, Thessalonica, and he's saying, and if we're going to follow this lead of Paul, we have to be equally committed to this battle for the hearts of those who may be called out to drift away. He said, we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart. We, we were trying so eagerly with such great desire to see your face because he wanted to come to you. He says, I, Paul, literally in the Greek, it's an idiom in the Greek text here, once, both once and twice, meaning again and again, over and over. But Satan hindered us. He, he, he wanted to get back. He tried so hard. He was absolutely committed, not just uh, to a kind of institutional or organizational response to their needs, but personally committed. As I said last week, this time it's personal, right? We have to, if we're going to make a difference in, in, in discipling of people and raising up people to follow the Lord, it has to be personal, not just institutional. It's commitment to people, not just to principles. Paul says here in our, in our Greek text, he says, since we were separated from you or torn away, the Greek word here is really uh, the word for orphaned. We were orphaned from you. And it's not the same, it's not the same sense of the word being orphaned means in our language. Uh, because in ancient Greek, the word here, aporphanistentes, uh, and it's got to do, it can be used for parents or children who lose one or the other, right? So you can be in, in, in the Greek language, the ancient Greek language, you could be an orphan as a parent when you lost your children, as well as the children could be an orphan. They just use the same word for both experiences. And so Paul's saying, we were separated from you, torn away, orphaned, like a family, like losing your family members, is what he was saying. That's how desperate he was. That's how close he felt. This is, of course, the continuation of the parental theme that we saw last week as, as we talked about the mothering and fathering of uh, of Christian outreach and discipleship and leadership that we saw in in. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And that's 
how personal it is. And you have to recognize that this battle is gone, commit to it, and commit to it not just institutionally. Oh, we need a program for this. We've got people who come to our meetings and they come to the front or they make a decision for Jesus and then they don't see them anymore. What's the answer? Is it? The answer is, of course, uh, that it's not that we can do some institutional, organizational, programmatic things, but they are never enough on their own. It's got to be you personally with people. Because Paul did some interesting institutional things in our letter here. He sent Timothy. He is now writing a letter. But even there, he still wants to come and see them himself. It's not sufficient for him. Uh, my wife Heidi, she couldn't be with us this morning, but uh, she was on this uh, mission team that went to a town and worked with a church there uh, to reach people. This was in England. And uh, a bunch of young people, you know, were, were coming to, the, to, to events and things, and a bunch of young people got... But they met all these unchurched young people from this English country town, made decisions for Christ, and and, and then the team left, you know. And then when they went back a little while later to find them, where have all they gone? And, of course, the problem was that these people, these young people who had had enthusiastically come and and started to respond to Jesus and, uh, you know, to pray prayers of commitment and repentance, they were connected not just uh, getting connected not just to Jesus but to people, and those people just left town <laughs> at the end of the mission, and they had no real relationship with the Christians remaining. And, I, and and so, this is what happened to the Thessalonians, right? They, they Paul's there with Silas and Timothy, and they they leave town. They're left alone. What are they going to do? So notice the emphasis here. Even though he's writing this letter with Silas and Timothy, the three of them are writing it. Every so often, Paul breaks into the first person. He says, I, Paul. Listen to that personal nature here. I, Paul, he says in, uh, in verse 18. And then uh, he says, separated from you in verse 17. Separated you in person, not in heart. Think of the personal language here. And then I, I, I was... You know, with great longing, we were all the more eager to see your face. I mean, your, the English Standard Version, which we read, has to see you face to face, but literally here in the Greek, you know, to pros upon him, to see your face. And uh, that's how personal it is. Programs alone won't work. Programs are only as useful as the faith and love of the people running the program. Hello? Programs are only as useful as the faith and love and personal commitment of the people running the program. You know, when I, some, of course, some converts kind of follow themselves up. That's the easiest kind, probably. The people who you don't have to chase, they come chasing you. When I was converted, uh, I just, you know, I found, uh, I had this young couple that was kind of helping me to grow in the Lord, helped bring me to Christ, and I just used to head up to their house and hang out, even when I was probably very inconvenient for them. But uh, I used to hang out. By the way, if you're ever in youth ministry, your main ministry is availability. You just need to hang out. And uh, and and so I just 
hung out with them. And that was, that was how I grew in the Lord, just hanging out, asking lots of questions, and they asking me questions, and just trying to investigate this new faith, because I had rejected, you know, uh, the gospel and God and everything, and as a young teenager, and uh, become an atheist and very skeptical, and gone into college looking for Christians to, to try and destroy their faith. And then I got converted. So I had a lot to learn. And uh, and so, yes, I, that's how I did it. It was personal. It was, uh, they were committed to me, not just from an institutional perspective. Yes, we're leaders of a, of a ministry in our church. We'll help you grow. But they personally committed. Uh, even in, in chapter 3 here and verse 10, and we're going to get to this later this morning, but Paul still, having sent the letter, or having sent Timothy and having sent the letter, still is praying earnestly night and day to see their face. So that's how personal it is. So commitment to the people, commitment. So number of words, how do you face this fight? You need to recognize the battle and commit to it. How do you do that? Number one, commitment, personal commitment. Number two, effort. Now, these are, these are kind of strong words, right? Look at the language that we see in this passage. We endeavored. We were eager and, uh, you know, all the more to see your face. That's effort. They tried. Doesn't always work, right? Paul was trying to come and follow up those Thessalonians, but wasn't working for him. But he tried over and over again. And the language here suggests that he uses, uh, suggests, you know, uh, a, a huge struggle and uh, that Paul was going through in order to, and it was repeated. Listen, don't let people drift away from God, from the church, from fellowship, from faith. Don't let them drift away without intervening, without anybody caring, without anybody acting, without anybody knowing. Proverbs 24, verse 11. Rescue those who have been taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Or... In Paul's own writings, Galatians 6, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness and watch yourself too, lest you be tempted. Wow. That's the responsibility of believers, to restore those who are are stumbling over the cliff, you know, to help them, to rescue them, not to let them drift away. And by the way, that takes knowledge. It takes knowledge. What I mean by that is it takes knowing someone to know. It takes active knowledge. It takes active relationship to know when they are drifting off, when they are losing heart, when they are giving up. You know, and they need to be noticed is the point, right? Someone, if you don't even notice it because you're not together enough, you're not relating enough, that you don't have enough connection, then, of course, it's easy for people to drift in and out. And it's one of the interesting features of 21st century church life is how easy it is to come and go from 
Christian gatherings without anybody really connecting to you, anybody really noticing. I know, uh, you know, in my mission life and, and our, our family as we've traveled and as we've moved from place to place sometimes in, in uh, the Lord's service, we've had occasion to try to join a church in a new town where we've come to minister. And uh, one of the things, you know, that we kind of have to judge by is how long can we go to that church without any, with anybody before anybody talks to us? <laughs> you know. And uh, that's a kind of interesting little uh, little thing. And so uh, if the only people who ever talk to you are the people whose job it is to talk to you, the official greeters, and that's helpful, but if, if that's the only people who talk to you, then you kind of feel like, well, no one's really interested in me. And it's just what they do it because of the program. Now, it may not be the case. There may be people really interested in you, but that's how people feel. So... Commitment, effort, third word, fight. <laughs> Look what Paul says. We wanted to come to you again and, you know, again, I, Paul, he says, and Satan hindered us. Look, this is for real. We, we, it's interesting to speculate exactly how did Satan hinder Paul from going to, from Athens back up north to Thessalonica. How did Satan do that? Uh, and lots of people have speculated, maybe there was sickness, maybe this, maybe that. And the truth is we have absolutely no idea. And so probably it's not important for us to know. Otherwise, Paul might have put it in here. So even though we can speculate, how does Satan do stuff? You know, well, we don't know, but we know that he did. Listen, if Satan can hinder Paul, hello? He could sometimes hinder us. What do you think? That might happen. And this is what I'm saying. We're in a battle whether we like it or not. Paul tried to return to Thessalonica, but he could not. No, no, by the way, there's no sense here in the letter that Paul is simply resigned to this as fate or somehow that he's kind of passively accepting the situation as it must be the will of God or something. No, he's praying night and day to come back to there. He's still praying. He hasn't given up, even though he can't get there yet. And in fact, of course, we know from the book of Acts and from other letters of Paul that he does go there later. Those prayers are answered. In fact, he goes there at least twice more. So that's, and he writes another letter, of course, Second Thessalonians, probably about six months after this one. Satan actively opposes the church and especially new converts and the young believers and those who are helping them. Especially new converts and young believers and those who are helping them. Uh, we see in Second Peter, Second Peter 2.18, he, he's prophesying false teachers arising in the church. And he says, they enti- he says false teachers entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are truly escaping from those who live in error. So, you know, it sounds a complicated way of saying it, but he's saying false teachers are preying on or feeding on, if you like, targeting those who have just escaped from the error of those around them. In other words, new converts. That's where false teachers 
uh, target. Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.6, talking about the appointment of elders in the church, said, must not be a recent convert or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the judgment of the devil. So, or condemnation of the devil. So again, Paul is recognizing the, the vulnerability of recent converts and to, to uh, the attacks of the devil. So, commitment, fight, effort, or effort and fight. Fourth word in this first part of the talk here, hope. <laughs> That's what we see in verse 19 and 20. Look at this, for who, you know, well, he, if I can just put it like this, for what, not who, is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you for you, our glory and joy? That's quite interesting. Uh, he's saying to them, this is how important you are to me. You're my crown when the Lord comes back. In his, in his parousia, in his arrival, his coming. You are our glory and our joy. Wow. It's not, by the way, that Paul is anticipating, you know, marching up to the, marching up to Jesus when Jesus comes back, chest puffed out. Hey, look at what I've done for you. Look at those Thessalonians. No, it's the Thessalonians himself that are Paul's crown. They are his joy, his glory. That's how important they are to him. How important to you are the people that you're ministering to? Paul expects to be rewarded or hopes to be rewarded in view of the second coming of Christ Hope, you see, is remembering the rewards. We put this effort, we put this fight, we put this commitment into the battle for young believers. We have this hope that God's going to recognize that, that God's going to reward that when Jesus comes back. They, they will be Paul's crown, therefore they must be his priority, is the point. Maybe you can remember what it was like for you when you met Jesus. How vulnerable, how weak, how young you were, how much you needed help. And think back and say, who were those people who did for me what I need to do for others? Who committed, who fought, who made the effort and who hoped for me that I might grow in Christ. So that's our first part of the talk. And now we're going to move on to the second uh, second main part, of which is verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3. And so if the first part is facing the fight, the second part we're going to call f- fighting for faith, fighting for faith. And we're going to start here with talking about the pastoral dilemma Paul could not endure. The pastoral dilemma Paul could not endure. Wow. Paul could cope with most things, right? I mean, if anybody could cope with suffering, it was Paul. He suffered so much for the gospel. In fact, 
several times, especially in First and Second Corinthians, he has very long lists of all the things he suffered as an apostle of Christ. And uh, he says, for example, in Second Corinthians, in one place in chapter 11, talks about greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the desert, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Wow. And uh, that's his kind of life, right? I mean, sometimes we might get a bit upset if we, you know, uh, have to wait an extra hour for dinner. But he's, he has to, this is his life. It's interesting to see the rest of the list. The list carries on. The last thing is this, and apart from other things, he says, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is who is falling or made to fall, and I am not indignant or inflamed. Second Corinthians eleven twenty three to twenty nine. Notice then that it's almost like the biggest things. All those sufferings are there, but the really big things is how the, is the churches that he has, and how he's, he suffers for them even more than he does for himself. Quite interesting. Now, but Paul could cope with almost anything. There are two things that he records in his letters that he cannot endure, that he cannot bear, cannot cope with. One is in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, where he was suffering some kind of persecution uh, and the threat of death. He says in, verse, in 2 Corinthians 1 8, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond ability that we despaired even of life. This was Paul was under so much pressure, he could not bear it. It was unbearable pressure of persecution, facing death, whatever the struggle was. We're not, he doesn't give us the details. But then he says, he goes on in verse 9 in 2 Corinthians 1 to say, but this was so that to, we would learn to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. It feels felt like I died, felt like I was already dead. I was given up. I'd given up life. And, and yet I had to learn to rely on God because death's not the end and God raises the dead. So that was one thing. He went through experience of so much pressure he could not cope. And he turned to God. The second thing that he cannot bear is right here. He says, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. That's in verse 1 of chapter 3 here. And in verse 5 of of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says it again. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer. This was unendurable to Paul. What was it that he could not endure? What was... One of the two things Paul could not endure, could not cope with. And here it is. He could not endure, number one, not knowing 
what was happening to the Thessalonian believers. He couldn't endure not knowing and he could not endure not being able to help. Not being able to help, not being able to be there and to help them. He could not endure not knowing. That's how desperate he was. That's how committed he was. It was unendurable. He took action. This tells you how important it was to him. So, in this passage then, verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3, we see a number of things. And in verses 1 and 2 is when Paul says he sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith. And uh, listen, take action. This is our next sub-point, sub if you like. Take action. Do not be passive. I think you're getting the point. I'm saying this over and over, I know. But that's because the passage goes there over and over. Take action over again and again. Again, the passage puts us, don't let people drift off. Don't let the Thessalonians suffer without the answers that they need. Take action and pay the price. Be willing to be left alone. This doesn't seem like a big deal, but it was a big deal when Paul himself, as we see in a minute, is also being persecuted and is also suffering and uh, and, he, and he's being left on his own there in a city that he maybe has never been to before uh, or at least somewhere, you know, where where he doesn't know anybody and the gospel's not been heard. He's been, he's willing to be left in Athens alone. And, uh, this is a big deal. When, and so don't let pe- people drift off into darkness. As it says in Hebrews 13, 3 verse 13, encourage one another each day. As long as it's still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So Paul sends Timothy. What do, what do we know about Timothy? It's quite fascinating. He is, according to Paul, he is our brother. That means he's a fellow member of God's family, a, br- a brother in the Lord, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. That's fascinating. You see, it's actually God's work to bring along the Thessalonian new believers and help them grow in their new faith. But Timothy is God's co-worker, and so are you, if you are doing the work of God with God and with his spirit. But I don't know how it was that Timothy could go that Paul and Paul couldn't. You know, there's some kind of satanic siege of Athens, right? And, and keeping Paul there, not able to, to get out past the enemy lines to up to back up to Thessalonica. Timothy could somehow slip through the satanic siege of Athens and make his way up to Thessalonica. I have no idea how that happened either, but that's what happened. So he took action. He sent Timothy. He took actions to do two things. Number one, to know their faith. And number two, to strengthen and establish their faith. By the way, faith, when it talks about faith in First Thessalonians, it's much more than just a moment. It's not just a, a moment of glorious, you know, belief at the front of a meeting or in a, in a sort of a, a, a mountaintop experience. Faith in First Thessalonians is ongoing trust in the Lord. It's biblical faith is enduring faith, right? Biblical faith is enduring faith. So take action to know and to strengthen their faith. That's what he sent Timothy for, right? I sent Timothy, verse 2, to establish 
and exhort you in your faith. And in verse 5, he says, when I, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy, he means, to learn about your faith. So he wants to know and he wants to strengthen. Listen, you've got to make, take action to know people, to know what they're doing. You, you, you may not realize just how many people, even here with us this Sunday morning, or in your circle of friends, or in the Christians you know, just feel like nobody really knows their struggle. Nobody really knows what they're going through. No one maybe has taken action to know them. Take action to know, to find out, to know, because you're personally committed and you love in Jesus' name. And then take action to strengthen and to establish people in their faith. That's all we have to do. Now, Paul says, do this, and he says uh, that no one might be moved. That's why he sent Timothy, that no one might be moved by these afflictions. And he explains that how he told them when he was with them. In fact, he repeatedly told them in advance that they were going, uh, that we are going to, you know, to, 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 to suffer. Just as also he says, you, it happened, and just, and just as you know. Notice again in First Thessalonians repeatedly he says, you know this, you know this, you know this. Why does he need to tell them? Uh, because, in fact, they don't quite know as they ought to know, even though they know it. And so he's telling them this suffering, you know, is not, of course, a sign that you made a mistake coming to Christ. Right? This suffering is part of the, part of the package. It's what you get because Christ suffered. And those who follow him follow in his steps. And that's part of, part of what it means to follow Jesus. And so don't be shaken by their sufferings or by seeing Paul's sufferings because that's what is destined for us. And I told you in advance repeatedly. They have to, so we need to recognize the pressures that people are under and help them to understand it and live with it, right? If you're helping someone to grow in Christ, you're going to have to recognize what pressures they're under. Persecution, perhaps. Why do people persecute Christians? Why do people persecute the people in their country who are perhaps going to be not perfect, but they're going to be generally law-abiding, tax-paying, people-helping citizens why would you persecute people like that? But the fact is, that's what happens. Why would you persecute a, 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 a community that says to honor national leaders and to obey the law and to pay your taxes and to do the right thing, not to steal, not to murder, not to commit adultery? Why would you persecute anybody who's, that's their life? Seems like that's exactly who you want in your city or country. <clears throat> But that's what happens. And the reason, of course, why people persecute is because persecution works, right? Not all, it doesn't always work the way they think, but it does work. If, if sometimes people get the, I get the idea that, uh, uh, if you were, if, you know, we're just going to need more persecution here because that's how God purifies the church, makes us holy. So God, just bring it on. <laughs> no, don't pray for that. All right. 
uh, it'll come enough when you, you know, there's enough of it out there without you wanting more. Uh, if persecution was the key to church growth, then you would expect to see, listen, you would expect to see that the biggest, most strongest, most powerful churches would be in the places that had the most persecution for the longest period of time. But that's not the case. All right? We, now, if we think about perhaps the Middle East, uh, we can think about nations there that have had persecution for since the 7th century, 8th century. And praise God for incredible believers, faithful believers in those countries. It's incredible how they, and, and, and praise God for it. But listen, the church has been kept largely as a tiny minority in those countries because Christians over the centuries that they've been killed or they've been chased out, they've had to escape. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus said if they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, right? Nothing wrong with that, you know. But that's why people persecute, because it gets them their way. And they don't have, they, and, and they, they are able to do their thing unchallenged by people who recognize a greater king. So, persecution and of course, temptation. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you. Maybe through the persecution they were happening, through other things. This is a second reference in our passage to the devil, right? He's, he was called Satan. Now he's called the tempter or the tester. And, uh, and so recognize the pressures people are under of opposition to their new faith, of temptation from the devil. Recognize the battle and take action. Remember also, as we saw in the first passage, part of the passage this morning, remember your rewards. Look at what we see in verse 6. You know, of verse uh, 5 to 8. He says, I'm afraid that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul was afraid of that. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love. By the way, when he says that, it's exactly the same word we reach it. We see elsewhere in the Bible for preaching good news. It's, it's a verb here, brought us the good news. But it's sometimes used in, and not just used in sort of gospel contexts. It can be used for any kind of announcement of good news. And so Timothy is announcing the good news of what? The Thessalonians' faith and love. That's good news, right? And reported, and the good news that he reported was also that you remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, so the rewards are the good, you know, the, uh, the faith, as you see people grow in faith and love, as you see them long, as people long to see you as well as they long, you know, then you get these kind of tempor- temporal rewards now. And Paul says, for now we live, we're alive if you're standing fast in the Lord. Wow. So first in chapter two, it talks about the kind of Rewards when Jesus returns. Now it's the rewards. Now there's a, there's a, there's a tremendous thrill and a reward and a blessing in seeing people grow in the Lord when they were struggling. You can help them. You can have that reward. He says, now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. Paul's well-being is wrapped up with theirs. Paul's well-being is wrapped up with theirs. So remember 
the goals here, right? Recognize the pressures people are under, remember the rewards, and remember the goals. What's the goal? It's their faith, of course, is the emphasis in this passage. I want to know their faith. I want to strengthen their faith, establish their faith. And then the good news is the good news of their faith and love. By the way, I did some research on on this passage when I was studying and uh, it was interesting that this little expression, your faith, I could not find anybody talking about this in any meaningful way ever before Paul did in all of the Greek literature I could search all the way back to 800 BC uh, that we have available to us. It just wasn't a normal way of talking. People didn't talk about how's your faith, how are you growing in faith. That's Christian Jargon, it's, it's, uh, it's what we would call, what uh, some people would call a socio-elect or a part of a, a social dialect. It's part of the, the jargon of the early church when they talk about their faith because it's so central to them. They call each other believers. They, they ask each other, how's your faith? They want to know about their faith. How are they, are they keeping on trusting Jesus? But the good news is also their love. Wow. And their longing for Paul. Now, by the way, what's missing? He got us good news of your faith and love. Anything missing there? Just one word we might have been expecting from chapter 1. Remember chapter 1, verse 3? We remember before, you know, remembering it in prayer, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your endurance coming from hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. No mention of hope here in the good report from Timothy, and that's because that is a problem in Thessalonica. Paul's going to address that in chapter 4. We're going to see that in a couple of weeks. So good news of faith and love. Hope's still a bit shaky. And so that's going to come in a minute, in in a couple of chapters, or in in about half a chapter away. Now, the final portion of our text, verses 9 to 13, is all (coughs) prayer. (coughs) Excuse me. So the the third main portion of our message then is prevailing in prayer. How to win the battle. Prevailing in prayer. How to win the battle. Verses 9 and 10 is Paul reporting on previous prayer. That's his prayer report. It's a prayer mainly of thanksgiving. What thanksgiving can we give? Can we repay to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face or see your face literally and and make up what is lacking in your faith. Thanksgiving is a debt. We have a debt of thanksgiving to God that we can never pay off but must keep paying. (laughs) Right? And for the faith and love of the Thessalonians, Paul doesn't take credit for it. He thanks God for it. Thanks God for it. And by the way, it's amazing how often when Paul talks about his prayer life, thanksgiving is a huge part of that prayer life. If thanksgiving is not a large part of our prayer life, that's a problem. We're grown, we're, it means we're growing in ingratitude. And that's not a good place to be. It doesn't help our faith or anybody else. Few things are more wonderful than to meet an elder, elderly person who's full of gratitude. That's a wonderful experience. Few things are more awful than meeting an elderly person who's full of ingratitude, grumpiness, and bitterness. 
And so what do you want to become? You are now becoming what you will be. Amen. Paul recognizes that the good news Timothy brings is because God has been at work in Thessalonica. They, Paul was left alone, but really the Thessalonians were never alone, even though Paul and Silas and Timothy weren't there. They were never alone because God was already working there with them. So the the follow-up of young believers, the helping them in the battle, is not all our responsibility. God is at work, amen? We're just co-working with him. So this prayer report is about earnest prayer that, you know, and he says here, beg your pardon, he says in verse 10, praying earnestly night and day that we may see your face and supply what's lacking in their faith. The visit to Timothy and the letter are not enough. Relationship is still important. And... Their faith still needs to grow. Timothy comes back with good news of faith and love. And Paul says, and then he says, oh, I'm praying that I'll supply what's lacking in your faith. What? (laughs) He wants to come and do that. And the latter won't do it. Timothy didn't do it. Even though Timothy was establishing and strengthening, there's still more. What's Paul saying? You have faith, faith more. You have faith, you need more. You need, there's, more, there's something lacking in there. I want to come and supply that when I come through, and I'm praying for that. You need to trust more. You need to believe more. You need to faith more, if I can make it a verb for a minute. Verses 11 to 13, the last part of our passage, is not a prayer report of a previous prayer. This is actual prayer. Uh, at the time, Paul is praying this by writing it. And this is, of course, a powerful prayer. May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. By the way, notice how he brings together God and the Lord Jesus in as the object of prayer. And it's kind of a prayer wish, but this is the way that they express prayers in, in the first century in Greek quite often. And that's how you did it. And it's he's praying to God and to the Lord Jesus together like that. So this is... For those of you interested in things like Christology, what's the view of Christ in this letter? It's very high indeed. He's right there alongside, the Son is right there alongside the Father as the object of prayer and faith and trust. Now, it's a prayer, what for? It's a prayer, first of all, that Paul will be able to come. And in verse 12, it's a prayer for the increase of love. Now listen. Timothy said, good news, Paul. They got faith and love. Paul writes back and said, that's great. Faith more. And I'm praying for more love. Right? You have faith, faith more. You have have love, love more. That's so, so important. Love for one another and love for all. And, of course, as Paul says, as we do for you. They need an example. They have an example in Paul. Look at how Paul loves the Thessalonians. Just do it like that. But listen, listen. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love. That's how love grows, by 
If you've got someone who's not in your life, one of your new converts, someone you're discipling, maybe someone in your family, a friend, and they're not, they love, but they don't love enough, here's what you do. Pray for it. That's what Paul did. He prays for the increase in love. And someone might be praying that for you. You never know, right? If we pray for that for each other, we're good. But notice it's not just for the church, it's for all. Pray for, the, the love needs to grow for those fellow believers and those everybody outside as well. And verse 13, fascinating, he says, why is he praying for the increase of love? So that he, that is God, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father when the Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. In the ESV says saints here. I think it's the, the Greek would be holy ones. And probably this is an allusion back to Zechariah. We're talking about God coming with his holy angels and so on. So that's really what he's talking about. Not Christians coming, but Jesus with all his holy heavenly, you know, army or his, his holy angels. Now, notice then. Jesus is coming with his holy ones and we need to be established in holiness when he comes. How are we going to be holy when Jesus comes back? Here's the thing, grow in love. How are we going to be blameless in holiness when Jesus returns, when we face him? Grow in love. Love is holiness. Hello? Love is pure and good and holy. If you love like Jesus. And so that's how you establish blameless and holiness. So what summarize then, what is Paul praying? He identifies the weak areas, faith and love, even though they got some. He brings them up in prayer. He brings them up in communication and he focuses on the important issues, faith and love. So listen, if you've got people who, who, who knew young in the faith who are tempted to tempted to backslide to drift away to you know they're metaphorically in the front row one month and this middle row the next month and then the back row next month and they go no i'm saying anything about those in the back row nope that's all right nothing nothing personal but it metaphorically if that's what's happening they're about to drift off you, you know then what are you supposed to do you're supposed to commit yourself to the fight for them don't let them drift away. And of course, to identify the weakness, to, to know them and to strengthen them, to identify the weak areas, to bring them up in prayer for the Lord, to bring them up in communication and focus on the important issues, faith, love, and of course, hope, which we're coming in a couple of weeks. Don't, if you've got, if you're hopeless, wait two weeks. <laughs> it's coming. Listen, this is a powerful passage calling us to love to greater love and especially for those who are vulnerable and weak in their new faith and let's ask the Lord to help us in Jesus name Father for those of us who have been around a long time sometimes we don't know what's going on in the lives of those around us we don't know enough and we need to strengthen them Father, open our hearts and minds. And Lord, for those here who may be weak and may be struggling with new faith, may be pressured, tempted in the spiritual warfare that we belong to, that we're just in, in by being a believer. Lord, strengthen their faith, 
grow their love, encourage their hearts. Help us to help them, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you all.